And good morning and welcome to the Patent Block here in downtown Monmouth for our first of two Ag Roundtables today on WRAM. Thanks for joining us. This is the FS Annual Fall Ag Roundtable. Our partners today include our corporate partner, Growmark FS, Midwest Bank, Big River Resources, Elliott Brothers Seed Company, Monmouth College, OSF Holy Family Healthcare, Warren Henderson Farm Bureau, Compere Financial, Hertz Ag Management, the Patent Block Grill and Brew Pub, and a Eugene Miller Agency. Let's jump right in. My partner to the left is Mr. Brendan Marshall. He is with FS. Welcome, Brendan. Oh, thank you, Vanessa. Um, looking forward to being here today. I enjoy this every year that we get to go through this, and uh, it's always a very good discussion. Yeah, thanks for being here. Appreciate it very much. Let's meet our panel, shall we? To my right is Tyler Slish. He is new to the program from Slish Cattle and Tri-County Cattlemen. Welcome. Uh, good morning, everyone. Looking forward to being here in today's discussion. And tell us a little bit about yourself, Tyler. Uh, Tyler Slish, uh, Monmouth, Illinois. Um, raised cattle. Um, president of the Cattlemen's Association. Worked full-time for Kent Feeds. And uh, my wife and I run a custom AI and ET business here just off town. Okay, thanks for being here. Also new to the program from the Illinois Pork Producers Association, Lana Shovlin. She is a communications director. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Tell us a little bit about you and what you do at IPPA. Uh, my name is Lana Shovlin. I'm the communications director from the Illinois Pork Producers Association. We're located in Springfield, and I do all the communications. So whatever you see um, on our social media or events like this, you will find me behind that. Well, thanks for being here. Appreciate your drive over. Thanks. Also with us is Dan Bowman. He is, of course, with Archer Daniels Midland. He's been on the program numerous times. Welcome back. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for having me back. How are things at ADM? Uh, pretty slow right now. We're, uh, you know, obviously heading into the early stages of the harvest here, so kind of winding down the old crop uh, marketing year and, and looking forward to the new crop side of things and hoping we see some rain soon to put in the rivers. Yes, absolutely. We're looking for that rain, no doubt about it. Look forward to the discussion with you. Jill Brokaw is with us. She's also new District 1 Director IPPA from Alito. Welcome back. Or welcome to your first one. Thanks so much. Yes, I'm Jill Brokaw, and I am a third-generation pig farmer just down the road from Joy, Illinois. And I am the District 1 Director for Illinois Pork Producers Association, and I'm currently employed by National Pork Board on their sustainability team. Okay, great. We look forward to your discussion. Thank you. Also with us is Troy Kazire, longtime member as well, manager with Hertz Farm Management. Welcome, Troy. Uh, thanks for having me, Vanessa. I've been doing these a lot of years, and it's always a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me back. We sure learn a lot, don't we? Absolutely. How are things at the new office at Hertz? Good, yeah. We just got moved into a new office. Uh, uh, settled in. We're actually going to have an open house on September 19th, so looking forward to that. And yeah, getting geared up for harvest and, uh, you know, thinking about leases for next year and, and just kind of moving on to the next step. Okay, thanks for being here. Ken Quinn is with us, Ag Lender with Midwest Bank as well, one of our other partners. Thanks for having us again. You're welcome. Good to be here this morning, Vanessa. How are things at Midwest Bank? Uh, things are good. A little slow right now, but uh, everything's good at the bank. Everything's going to change quickly. It's going to yeah. get, get very fast. Thanks for being here with us. Also with us, Brian Poston, Compere Financial Officer, another one of our partners in this event. Welcome back, Brian. Good morning, Vanessa. Glad to be here. How are things at Compere? Things are going well. A lot of uh, pre-harvest discussions and plannings going on right now. Um, this is the time of year you'll start to see farms um, come up for, for sale. Uh, so a lot of discussions on thinking through those opportunities that are going to be coming up. Okay, thanks for being here. Ken McMillan with us from the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau on the board, uh, past legislator as well. Good to have you here, Ken. Good to be back. How are things, uh, what, what are you seeing out there as an economy uh, perspective? Oh, the same kind of uncertainty that... Uh, has plagued us for some time, and it's an election year. That makes it worse. Um, uh, you know, there are problems getting stuff through the uh, Panama Canal because of weather. Uh, the uh, West Coast, which got really bogged down at the ports, uh, hasn't gone back to normal. So there, there are enough challenges out there, both economically and otherwise to to keep every farmer and to keep everybody involved in agriculture kind of at the edge of their seat. Okay, we'll talk more about that. Thanks for being here. 
Also with us, Dwayne Bonifer, Associate Vice President in the Monmouth College Communications Department. Thanks for being a partner with us as well. Always great to be here, Vanessa, and here. And Professor McMillan Speaker reminds me of the famous line by uh, the physicist Niels Bohr, the uh, future is incredibly hard to predict, especially when you don't know what it's going to be. So. Yes. No doubt about it. We can predict in the future an excellent lecture, the, uh, the uh, upcoming Wiswell Robeson lecture with Lauren Lurkins, who is with the Illinois Farm Bureau. Yes, I, it's hard to add anything that uh, Gene Robeson didn't already say this morning, that great interview I heard with you all, but Ken will be doing the introductions on Monday night at 7 o'clock over in Dahl Chapel in the auditorium. And I think folks who are interested in agriculture and hearing about the future of agriculture and how to let leverage that future will find this to be a, another great lecture. Okay. And finally with us today, longtime member as well, Wendell Shaman, past U.S. Grains Council chairman. Uh, welcome, Dr. Shaman. Good morning. Remind us a little bit about you, Wendell. Uh, I've been involved in a lot of lot of boards for the last 30 years and, and had an opportunity to go a lot of places around the world. I was interested in, in the comment on the uh, Panama Canal. I've been down there three or four times and watched it as, it as they built the new channel. And it just strikes me as funny as you've got this canal was built, what, 1912, I think, if I remember right, with oceans on both sides, and it's out of water. The prices have gone up drastically to get people through, and they're lowering the, like we do in the Mississippi, they're lowering the, the amount of freight they can have to get their, keep their depths, or raise their depths, or not going... And that's not taking so much water. So uh, the world's upset in a lot of different places right now. It is. That's a good way to put it. We'll jump into that discussion as well. Thanks for being here, Wendell. So let's do it. Let's start the SAG roundtable first. Uh, for our farmers who are listening, we do have uh, no chance of rain at the moment in the weather forecast through Wednesday, according to the National Weather Service this morning. Brendan, I would like you to be able to set the stage for farmers as far as an agronomy report as of t today on this Thursday. Well, um, things look good, uh, depending on where you're at. Uh, as you know, um, people just driving around. I've been in, I've been in quite a few fields here this week and and towards the end of last week. Corn's changing quite a bit. Planting date has a lot to do with it. I mean, the earlier planted corn and you know uh, or, or earlier season hybrids are really starting to turn. Um, I have a, I have a couple growers that are starting to chop silage and uh, said their silage is pretty decent. Soybeans. Same way, they're starting to turn, a lot of disease showing up. I, I have found some sudden death. Um, uh, there's a little bit of uh, white mold uh, in different areas. Uh, I think some of the wet mornings we had last week, um, in the last two weeks, the heavy dews and things like that have brought that on. But I think with, uh, if we have you know a rainfall of any kind, beans are going to change drastically. Um, and a lot of beans were planted early this year, so that's another reason they are starting to do some natural turning. But Harvest will be here pretty quick. I didn't anticipate it that way, but it looks to me like it's going to be here pretty quick. Okay, thank you for that update, Brendan. Let's jump into crop and livestock marketing and financial discussion. Dan Bowman from ADM, go ahead and lead us in our discussion. Uh, you might start with, you know, where are we at as far as bushels uh, per acre compared to what the USDA had originally forecasted for us, which is always, you know, up in the air until we actually get to harvest. Absolutely. Um, early August, uh, report from the USDA said we're going to have somewhere around 175.1 bushel corn crop uh, and a 50.9 bushel per acre bean crop. Uh, obviously, we know since then weather has uh, has has maybe been a lot more volatile than, than we have seen in, in any of the recent past years and, and became very hot, very dry uh, in a lot of areas. And, and many of those areas were, were basically um, pretty light on rainfall throughout the year as well. So there's a there's a highly anticipated uh, move that uh, we'll probably see bean yields adjusted down because of that uh, hot period because we all know beans are pretty much made in the month of August and, and we had no rain and a lot of heat in a lot of areas. So so that's probably the key point that uh, most traders are looking at and you know I think uh, from a producer standpoint we want to be bullish uh, the bean market for sure uh, because of those factors but we also need to note that we've put a dollar a bushel on the bean market since early August as well. So the, the market has compensated somewhat for that. So and, and quickly when we when we start looking at the production numbers, we start putting those on paper and getting those behind us, uh, uh, some in the market will will quickly turn to the demand side of the equation and 
certainly that has been a lot slower this year, especially from an export standpoint in the world markets for, for the U.S. And, um, you know, that's due to, to a lot of features, but mainly because uh, the Brazilian crops, the soybean crop and the corn crop, have been just monstrous down there. And, and uh, from a financial standpoint, they've been a lot better market uh, from a price per bushel standpoint than the U.S. has due to tight domestic supply and demand in the U.S. Yes. Um, and I looked at the top uh, U.S. exports so far for this year, and it was uh, China, Canada, Mexico, Japan, U.K., South Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan, Philippines, Indonesia. Nothing out of the ordinary there? Nothing out of the ordinary. I, I think the, the biggest change year over year is the fact that you know, China just has not been in here in the corn market buying U.S. corn. Uh, part of that's, uh, again, they bought a lot of U.S. corn last year, um, so they kind of replenished supplies. They had a poor crop a year ago. They're projected to have maybe best ever corn crop in China this year, um, you know, depending on which numbers you you want to find and believe on that side of it. And, and then, I, like I say, couple that with the South American crop, which uh, seems to be a a, uh, a trading partner uh, more of choice for China than the U.S. from that perspective, too, for various reasons. But price mainly, I think, is, is the reason there. Uh, the South American crop just there's not a great way to store that crop, so it needs to move, and from a price perspective, it will be priced to do so, and that's where China's at. They're buying the South American crops versus the U.S. crops. And Wendell Shaman with the U.S. Uh, Grains Council in the past, plus, as you said, you've traveled um, in many different places. Brazil, this is, uh, we heard a scientist earlier in the year from the U of I, Champaign-Urbana, talk about this was going to be the year. They get the chance to have a three-cycle crop, you know, because of their weather versus our winters here. So they, they in, in, a, in a case, have double the opportunity, if you will, to produce crops. Well, they're an amazing competitor, uh, and they're doing things right. Uh, on the infrastructure situation, for years, they were really behind us. If it was a clumsy system to, to get deliver things to a port to get it going. Uh, they've really improved that. Uh, I don't know. I know it's much better than it has been. Or somebody else may more may know more about how much has been done, but they're doing all the right things. Uh, years ago, I, I know there was a I think if I remember right, somebody from Holland was was financing a, a railroad track to get up to uh, the Amazon River. Uh, I think that thing's been built, at least partially built. The roads are improving. They're they're still got a long ways to go, uh, but they're not sitting still, uh, and their yields are. are remaining pretty good, so they're a really good competitor. Have, uh, has Brazil, uh, South American corn, soybeans ever been the front runner of total production um, in, in bushels per acre before? Say that again. Have they ever outdone the United States in production of corn and soybeans before? Uh, I don't think so. I guess I don't really know. The beans they are now. Yeah, beans. Yes, and, yeah. and they have, this year they have became the leader in U.S. or in corn exports to the world and bean exports to the world. Okay. That was the picture I was trying yeah. to, to paint was, uh, it, like you said, an amazing competitor. Yeah, and they have a price price advantage, too, because of the strong dollar. So we, we, we're taking a hit there, too. Okay. From the livestock perspective, uh, Tyler Schlisch, you know, certainly uh, with cattle, kind of tell us about the marketing year. Plus, you do other things with cattle, not just, uh, you know, finish cattle and, and raise them, but also – bulls and semen as well yeah so i mean right now the livestock market especially the cattle market is a kind of a fun one to be in maybe a little bit scary too from the standpoint of if you've had cattle on feed uh you're selling them for record highs but uh you're also buying them back for record highs um so that's become quite the challenge especially in in my role in the nutrition business um but uh even with uh, we, we talked about uh, corn and beans, uh, the price points on those are still extremely competitive to feed livestock right now and uh, actually have some pretty good uh, profits per head coming back on some of these incoming cattle. Uh, as far as the markets, uh, you, you know, you mentioned uh, bulls and, and semen and that stuff. I think the seed stock producers are enjoying some pretty high times right now. Um, the cow herd numbers are extremely low. Uh, so the higher quality cattle uh, people are investing in, uh, and then the bull sales, uh, you know, we're, we're not really in that season right now, but I would look for those to be awful strong coming into the late winter and early spring. Okay. So production decline as of yesterday, one 
story had it at 180 million pounds, but was going to be offset by a higher uh, harvest. So are they expecting higher numbers with cattle? Yeah, I mean, well, I think if you look at cattle finishing weights, I mean, we're finishing cattle at uh, at least 100, if not 200 plus more pounds per head. So uh, we're making up for the total pounds even with less cows. Okay, thanks for that update. Let's turn to pork. Uh, which of you ladies, Lana or Jill, or both of you, would like to talk about the hog numbers? I'll go for that. This is Jill. Um, yeah, you know, with the hog market, um, it's been a volatile year along with everybody else. Um, while we've made some gains here as of late, you know, it doesn't, it's not really compensated for the first half of the year where the markets were extremely low. And that doesn't even take into account the input costs. So um, with our input costs being so astronomically high, even currently and moving forward, um, I think we'll just continue to hope to have a year where we can wade through it and come out not in the red and, you know, hope for, hope for brighter, brighter times ahead. But I do know that a lot of the, the market increased volatility in the hog market is due to some of this legislation with Prop 12, um, and we won't know what those ramifications are on our markets until – about January, February, because that's when those those sales to California will. So. Yes, we're definitely going to get into that uh, here in just a moment. So I'm glad you already prefaced the Prop 12 in California, Lana. Anything else you want to add about the the markets for hogs here in the 23, 24, and 25 years? Um, well, like Jill said, I mean, obviously it hasn't been the best year for um, pig farmers. But from my side of it, you know, I work closely with marketing, and we are doing our best to market different cuts of pork that would be. Um, you know, it's always an economical protein choice, but we're really pushing the sales of ground pork, which can be used in lieu of any other kind of ground protein that you would use. So we're trying to find ways to reach people, um, even though we're having a hard time right now. I mean, that's something that we're constantly working towards is letting people know that pork is a protein that is out there, it's affordable, it's available, and you can use it any way that you would use any other protein. Okay. Thank you very much, Lana. All right, let's turn to Troy Kazire. Your thoughts on our financial discussion, crop marketing. Uh, you see it with customers right there at Hertz. Yeah, I don't know that I have a lot to add beyond what, what Brendan and, and Dan have said. Um, I, I do expect with the, the next uh, the next yield estimate, the next report, when's that coming out, Dan, next Tuesday? Um, I do think we're going to see a cut uh, both in, in corn and soybeans. Uh, it'll be interesting. I, I don't uh, I don't think there's quite the corn crop out there that a lot of guys expect based on what I've seen. Uh, certainly better than we thought it was going to be, you know, in that in that June to, to mid-July time frame when we weren't getting any rain at all. Um, and, and, and actually, if you take a look over at Iowa, you know, they started off the season very well. When, when we were getting no rain at all, Iowa was in pretty good shape. And then about the time we started getting rain in Illinois, it, the spigot shut off in Iowa. And so they've... They have not finished very well in a lot of parts of the state, um, so so Iowa's going to have some issues uh, to their crop as well. Um, like like Brendan said, a lot of uh, the, these soybeans are turning fast, and they're not turning like they normally do. They're just kind of dying in, in a lot of fields uh, rather than than sort of a natural turn, you know, natural program death that we that we typically see so uh it, it, it's going to be interesting uh, a lot of a lot of uncertainty out there yet um you know there's still some pretty good solid fundamentals underneath this market but um you know it, it, it remains to be seen how things are going to play out here over the next few weeks okay brendan he brings up a, a they've all brought up great points they keep saying input costs too what are we looking at for input costs this fall so you know, on the flip side of uh, of where we were from a year ago, I mean, nitrogen is down five, six hundred dollars a ton from what it was about a year ago. Right now, and that that'd be anhydrous ammonia for fall. Um, the phosphates in the potash market have softened quite a bit too. Um, you know, the, the ammonia piece or the nitrogen piece started to fall a little bit last spring, and then as we got into the summer, it came down a little bit. Since 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 it came down, there's actually, I guess you would call it maybe a dead cat bounce or something like that. It's turned and came up. Um, but manufacturers have shut off on, on some of the places where, you know, you'd be able to buy the terminal. But I, in my area, I would say that probably most of the nitrogen has been contracted for this fall already. 
but you know, and that can be a flip side. We got to get it all on. I mean, my company right now has contracted more ammonia for fall ammonia than we ever have, and last year was a record-breaking year for us. We had a great fall to put it on. I hope we have it again this way. Um, and if that's the case, that would be the same way for the Midwest, where you can put on ammonia. So I, I mean, I'm. If that all gets on, I think you're going to see inputs drop more for spring. And Troy, you might have a different opinion about that, but you know, the more you get on, the better it is for the following year, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know. I agree 100. Um, percent You know, we've uh, we, we've pretty much got all our inputs locked up for, uh, for, for 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 as far as fertilizer goes. And and yeah, I would say most of the ammonia that that we bought is about 50 percent of what it was last year. Um, uh, Phosphorus and potassium have, have been running about 60% of what they were last year. Um, there has been a little bit of a bounce, like, like Brendan said, but I think most guys have got most of their needs locked up. And and yeah, I think we're going to see. A, I think I think we're going to see a drop in prices. I, I'm. It's hard to tell. And with that, right now, which I would highly encourage somebody, which Dan, you'd probably agree that I mean, if you've got some input started right now, Troy, now's the time to start looking at you know marketing to cover some of your stuff, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Dan, anything you want to add on that? I would absolutely agree with that. I think we, we kind of got the deer in the headlight syndrome last year at the same time when we were seeing those higher prices, um, like Brennan was saying, and, and, you know, we just didn't think we could stomach the input prices with, with where the value of corn was. Well, knowing that, looking back, we had a lot of chances to sell December 23 corn in the 630 to 660 area, um, and again, knowing our input side of it, and, and we always seem to underestimate our ability to raise crops uh, from a production standpoint, too. So um, I think this year, with the lower price uh, inputs, uh, 515, 525, these 24 corn, uh, certainly need to be looking at locking in some of that as well. Okay. Jill and uh, Tyler, any thoughts on input costs for livestock that you want to share with our audience? I would just say from my perspective, uh, where where the price of corn is right now, corn kind of dictates most of the, the cattle feeding. Um, I wouldn't be afraid to lock in your corn um, just from what these guys have said earlier here about uh, we're not sure that crop is actually there, and I don't know if these prices, if they go up, you know, a dollar a bushel on feeding cattle is uh, is a pretty substantial difference. Thank you, Tyler. Jill? Yeah, I agree with, I agree with those sentiments that, you know, it's, I have bought a lot of corn, a lot higher than it is right now, and <laughs> I um, I'd be glad to, to buy a corn farmer. Thanks you. Yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to buy some five dollar corn. So, <laughs> but no, it it is definitely one of those things that I think you know if we had the magic eight ball to see where everything was going to land, you know, you'd know what to do. But I think that now is a good time to kind of lock some of that in, and for from a security standpoint. Okay. Before I get to our ag gentlemen and our commentary as well, Wendell Shaman, uh, your final thoughts about the crop marketing, financial, uh, in general for farmers. Well, I don't. That's an area I don't claim to be very good in at all. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. But, but as far as being very professional, I'm just not. Uh, uh, last year was a pretty good year, at least for me. Uh, I've been real nervous about this coming year. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts were on this we're year. We're just, you know, talking to Dwayne. You know, what do you think the crop's going to be? I, uh, I'm with a guy that I forget somebody yet on the other day. We're going to see that monitor go very 100 bushel up and down, just going across the field. You see real good ears, and you go in other places. You see small ears. Sometimes in those small ears, you'll have to, you'll have a second ear. But the question there will be: Can you keep it from just going through the roll? Maybe both of them are going to go through the roll. So it's just. I have no idea what we're going to get. And driving to uh, or through Henderson County uh, this past Monday, and, and I go about every other week, and some of the fields had turned already. They were just as orange as a pumpkin. Other fields still green, maybe some light turning, but just out of nowhere you would just find a field just completely turned. Okay, so set the stage for you, Brian Poston, and also uh, Ken Quinn with Midwest Bank. You've heard from your marketing guys. You've heard from our farmers. You've heard from inputs. Uh, so what do you think? Uh, how do you help your farmers uh, think about next year and the crop this year? Well, I think it's a it's an individual discussion decision for each farmer. Each each operation, each farmer has a different 
risk tolerance, different financial position that they need to evaluate. Um, I agree wholeheartedly with what some of these guys are talking about, you know, taking a look at some, doing some marketing, um, knowing what your break-even is, and, you know, if you get an opportunity to price price at levels that are above that break-even, I think that person should strongly consider, you know, starting some sales. You know, taking a look at, like, this year, um, we've got a wide range on what people's break-evens are, depending on your APH and so forth. But, you know, on average, you might have somebody that's got a break-even in that 550 to 575 range. And, you know, right now, we're depending on what kind of uh, production you have, you're, you're looking at levels that are, that are under that. So um, I think people, like, you know, whether it's this year's crop or, you know, future year's crop, as you lock in your expenses, um, really need to know your numbers and, and take a hard look at, at uh, making some decisions. And most of the time, uh, store and ignore is a, is a, it's a plan, but um, oftentimes it's a, it's a poor plan. Thank you very much, Brian Poston. Ken? Uh, I'd have to agree with that last statement about, you know, just storing and, and waiting for a number uh, down the road. I think, like Brian said, you know, we need to uh, know the, you know, your break-even costs. And if you can make a profit, uh, guys need to be selling, selling grain to cover that because I see too often, and I've seen it because I was in the grain business for 32 years before I got with the bank. Um, you know, there's always that number, whether it's $6, $7, whatever, that's above where the market's at. Everybody wants that. And um, a lot of times you ask a guy, what is, you know, where can you make money at? And they're not 100% sure. They just want that specific number. And I think they really need to sit down and and go over their costs and and know that they can sell at a profit at, at what level and start marketing at that because, uh, if you're making money, you're going to be around next year to farm again. So. Okay. And, Kim McMillan, for, you've heard a lot of the discussion, and from an economist standpoint, I think it was Dan that alluded to we needed more uh, rain because, uh, A, yeah, the, and Wendell said the Panama Canal slowing traffic down. They're slowing it down on the Illinois and Mississippi uh, as well. So we, uh, we, we, that makes it you know, a longer wait to get to see. But what do these impacts have on farmers? I think the the greatest impact if if I were the farmer that had money invested, if, if I was a farmer worried about the future of my own operation, um, I, I keep dwelling on the uncertainties that are out there. Um, there are things that could can cause our dollar to strengthen. There are things that can cause our dollar to weaken. What we'd really like to have over time is a stable dollar because buyers in other countries would know what stuff's going to cost. Um, we would know if we're importing some fertilizer, likely what that, what those prices are going to be. Um, transportation costs are bound to go up every time the price of diesel uh, climbs. That increases transportation costs. Uh, from, from my standpoint, looking at it, the, again, as I said earlier, the uncertainty that's out there, um, we can look at a good crop, we can look at the prospects, we can look at the margin between what our expenses are and, and what we can bring in, but a lot of that can change overnight in a world where uh, there's potentially a war on both coasts uh, in the long run, uh, we don't know what the farm bill is going to, whether we're going to get a farm bill in time to plan well for next year. The crop insurance is still maybe the most important thing. So I look at all these things that are uncertain, which makes it very, very hard to make decisions for for the future. Okay, thank you very much, Ken. Dwayne, your final commentary on subject number one with crop marketing and financials. I'd like to hear more thoughts about the future of Brazil. Um, I'm old enough to remember when everyone talked about Brazil as the next great power in the 1970s and 80s. And even though its GDP declined, I think, between 2014 and 19, last year they had $91 billion of foreign direct investments. We were talking about that railroad, Wendell. Um, you know, they have a new president in Brazil. Uh, Lulu's done a lot.
lot different than I think people thought. And I'm reading in The Economist recently that their agricultural labor productivity has been on the increase. Uh, is this something that we're going to see in the future, do you all think? Uh, more uh, threats, challenges from Brazil, or is this just another blip on the radar and their mercurial up and down? What do you all think? Turn to Dan on that. I think the future's already being seen. It's here. It's now. Um, you know, they're like I said, from a from an export standpoint, they've surpassed us in corn and beans this year. I, I think the biggest key maybe down there that's going back to maybe Ken's word of uncertainty is from a production standpoint, their weather is maybe a bit more volatile than ours is uh, due to the vast area of production down there in you know, Argentina and Brazil in particular. So so I think that's one of the important things is, is maybe there's more volatility. Now, that being said, that can be offset a little bit by the multiple seasons of growing too. So um, Wendell said it, the infrastructure you've mentioned, the rail, uh, I, I think, in my mind, the next step is probably, you know, infrastructure within, like our country elevator systems and things like that, that that will maybe spread that, uh, that those commodities out throughout the the course of the calendar year to to again be more of an export threat to the U.S. because that's the one thing we have that they don't have. We can we can store our crops, um, but I think too. As they're doing all those things, I think the U.S. is also progressing with more uses for our products, too. You know, sustainable aviation fuel on the corn side. I know maybe that's a little bit debatable on when, when or if that's going to kick in now uh, due to, due to uh, Washington, things coming out of Washington, uh, green diesel. You know, there's a lot of expansion in the in the uh, bean processing industry right now that's probably going to take hold about 2025, more so than here in the next year. But uh, we're doing things to use more of our crops domestically and export the end product more than, than they can, I guess, at this point in time. Okay. And, yes, Wendell. Uh, the other thing, they still have land to develop down there. Uh, and they've got their own problems, and they've got, got people on both sides of that issue. Uh, there are people who are still trying to defend the forest land that's there, and, you know, you guys shouldn't be, be taking this all out. But there's still a lot of land down there eligible for development, and, some, at least some of it will. And Brazil's the big dog, but Argentina's a pretty good, a much smaller country and, and totally screwed up political system. Uh, but some pretty good farmers down there. Uh, how they survive in that political environment, I don't know. But uh, but they're, they grow some pretty good crops, too. Well, and, and many of you uh, in this room that will be on tomorrow at the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau, um, Troy, with what you did in the past at Bayer, formerly Monsanto at the Learning Center. I mean, we have done a wonderful job of teaching Brazilian farmers how to grow crops more effectively, efficiently. That is what Illinois uh, farmers do. Yeah, and there, I mean, there, there's some there's some interesting dynamics when it when it comes to Brazil. Uh, you, you know, and I mean, this is I don't know that this will ever be a huge. Uh, impact on the market, but there are some opportunities that that we have in the U.S. when we think about infrastructure and the ability to segregate. So when you start talking about certain types of of specialty soybeans, whether it's high oil or different proteins and things like that, we have the ability to segregate and and grow some some specialty type beans. What we're I don't think we're ever going to compete with Brazil when it comes to commodity soybeans. It's just I mean that that ship has sailed. Um, but there's some also things, you know, kind of looking down the road. Brazil has been fairly friendly when it comes to uh, GMOs, but they're also about a, they're a generation behind the U.S. Uh, when it comes to the to the uh, trait technology that they adopt, and their their soybean production in particular is incredibly intensive. They spray four to five times per year with, for with insecticide, fungicide. They have incredibly high disease and insect pressures. Uh, a lot of disease and insect resistance issues uh, have cropped up down there, and so they're going to have some challenges too uh, down the road that that we're not necessarily going to be fighting uh, the the way that they will be. Do they do uh, what is their adoption of trade? Do they do, they do GMOs for for corn? And I ask yes. because of the Mexico situation, yes. you know, with their decree with us with the United States and not following what they agreed to with NAFTA, would that could they buy from there, but not if they have the same yeah, challenge no, with GMOs? 
They do. They they uh, they do have GMOs. They they are like I said, typically one gen- in corn. They're one generation behind us. So when okay. when farmers say say we you know uh, the, the the seed companies in the U.S. start start selling a, a new BT trait, for example, it's typically a, a few years before you're going to see that available in Brazil. They're they're one generation behind on corn. Now they do because of their uh, incredibly high insect pressure. One thing they have in Brazil that we don't have uh, is BT soybeans. Uh, they actually have a double stacked BT soybean because they have velvet bean caterpillar, soybean looper. They have a lot of larva pests, uh, and that has reduced the amount of, of insecticide that they have to spray. But um, what you see down there. Uh, because of their high pest population is is BT resistance and, and insecticide resistance on a level that we don't have here in the U.S. You need your own podcast, Troy. That's a compliment. Dan? One thing I'd mention, too, and add, add to it, one of your other topics down the, down the line here as well, but uh, uh, Wendell mentioned it, the deforestation situation, and one thing that we're starting to see out of the U.S. is, is maybe a differentiation in the sustainability programs that we have uh, due to the lack of deforestation that we do in, in the U.S. And the, and the more sustainable efforts that we use to, to raise soybeans. So we're starting to see some premiums uh, pop up around the world from end users that want that product versus a product that's been grown on uh, ground that's been cleared off. Okay, interesting. Wendell, you final thoughts? Well, the, the other thing that's helping with some, especially on soybeans, is, is the Soybean Association has done a pretty masterful job of increasing demand for, for soybeans and, and using it in the United States. So we're not as dependent on the world trade as we have been. I, I hope I, that's a fair summary. I mentioned that earlier, too. I mean, as far as the green diesel initiative coming up, too, a lot of capacity being increased over the next two years on, on uh, you know, procurement and, and, and refining of the raw beans as well, like you say. At the same time, coming into this morning, one of the news stories is Anchor Brasa, which is a Brazilian company, is building a or expanding a processing facility over at Gilman. So yes. They're moving into us, our territory, too. And tomorrow morning, if you uh, have a chance, tune in or come to the uh, our annual FS breakfast because Rodney Weinzerl, the Illinois Corn Executive Director, will be talking about the um, sustainable aviation fuel, uh, things like that. And, of course, tomorrow's roundtable will talk even further about this topic. Okay, moving on to the next topic, which is livestock regulation. Um, <clears throat> we'll go ahead and start with uh, pork. It's been the forefront since May, especially in the Supreme Court, I believe, held up. Uh, this decision with Prop 12. Uh, Lana, just set the stage for us. I mean, I think everybody's understanding what has happened, but and we don't know the ramifications yet. No, that's correct. So we actually just had our board meeting yesterday, um, and as you can all imagine, that was on the forefront of everybody's mind is what's going to happen with Prop 12. And pig farmers um, are all kind of scattering, trying to figure out what they're going to do. Um, currently, what what the standards are, until you can correct me if I'm incorrect about any of this information, but um, what they're wanting to propose is that you would go from having, um, you would have 24 square feet per pig for your housing, which then would in turn reduce capacity in, in farms by about 30%. And so um, as you can imagine, that, that is not very cost effective for farmers. Um, there would be a lot of issues that would play into that. And producers um, are expected to then spend about 290 to $348 million to update their housing, which is something that, you know, is hard to justify when you have unpromised premiums that would come out of that. Um, as of right now, our pork producers are not expected to become compliant with Prop 12, um, and that is something that they have the option whether or not they want to do that. But on the way here this morning, I was talking to our president, Chad Lehman, and I think the problem that then they are all facing is, you know, um, what is the next step? You know, if if we don't become Prop 12 compliant, that's fine. But then as more states kind of see what's happening, will they adopt Prop 12 compliances as well? And then we do end up having to adapt to those standards. Mr. Lehman was on our Illinois Corn TV last week discussing these. He was very uh, bold and to the point about these. Cha- these are significant uh, challenges. Tyler, and I'm going to get right over to Jill too. But as a livestock farmer as well, but with cattle, I mean, this is not about cattle. But 
well, you're starting with pigs. What's next? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it may be starting in California with pigs, but it, it really, I think, scares all of us in the agriculture, uh, especially the livestock community, because uh, the next thing they're going to do is push on the dairies in California, and then the next thing you know, it's in the beef market. Uh, and we're all trying to have people outside of our industry tell us how to raise our livestock, and I think that's the biggest misconception uh, we have in, in probably Illinois pork, Illinois beef, the cattlemen. I mean, we all try to tell our story, but it just goes back to we, we've got to be bolder and louder uh, about it. And I was reading last night, California produces less than 1% of pigs. Uh, that's according to Morning Ag Clips, uh, their news article. So they produce 1%, but what I'm understanding from this proposition is they're going to tell 99% of other producers how to raise their pigs. Is that correct, Jill? Yes, you got it. So um, if you take a step back, Prop 12 was introduced as a ballot initiative in 2018. So um, that's what's really terrifying is that one single state has decided to set dimensions that are going and that it will affect all the other states in the country. So it's starting with Prop 12 and this, but you know, it's not just Prop 12. There's Prop 12, now there's question three, and the next, and the next, and the next. It's the, the problem is one state deciding what all the rest of the states need to, need to comply with. And while California only produces 1% of the pork in the industry, they're consuming, I think it's close to 35%. Um, That's the rub. Absolutely. That's a major customer Absolutely. because of the, the amount of people that live in Southern California. Correct. Right. Well, and then you have to think about, you know, um, if you're living in somewhere, you know, like Silicon Valley and you're a millionaire living in California who can pay, you know, upwards of $20, or $20 a pound per bacon, it may not affect you. But the majority of people that are living in California are not making that type of income. So um, I think these these laws are being passed where um, it's not taking the collective uh, population into account. And what ends up happening then is the price of pork just increases in California for everyone, you know. And that is something that we struggle with constantly is to keep pork prices low so that it's, I, you know, mentioned earlier, so that it's an affordable protein for families. Um, that is something that we are proud of. Um, you know, Jill is an Illinois pig farmer. Me is someone who works for IPPA. That is something that we are constantly talking about, and this is just kind of going to turn everything on its head. So, uh, I'm, Tyler, I've got a question for you in just a second, and Jill, about uh, the farm bill. I'm going to come right back to that. First, though, I want to ask Ken, as a past legislator um, and an economist, how do you legislate this, or how do you regulate it state by state? If some are going to be compliant, some are going to be non-compliant, and what does the marketing person tell their, their farmer? Well, there's a movement out there to try to get uh, the federal government to come up with legislation that would prohibit that from happening. But for the most part, right now, most of us are worried about whether the federal government's going to get around to uh, putting together uh, a farm bill that meets some of the some of the needs and. Every time we ask for the federal government to come in and do something on our behalf, they end up doing more to us uh, in agriculture. So, so that's the other side of the, the coin. If you want to get the federal government involved to try to help solve the marketing challenge that's resulting from what California does, there's always the possibility that what they do could, could regulate things worse. I mean, sometimes you don't want to mess with a can of worms that's already open. Now, I, I don't mean to be totally negative, but I think that's a concern that we all ought to keep in mind. And, uh, Lana, there's uh, in the Farm Bill an Animal Welfare Act introduced. I don't know if you've seen very much of this. It's just starting to get a lot of traction that is due to what happened with Prop 12 and the potential for Question 3. Right. I think a lot of what happened with Prop 12 was put into motion because people thought that they were um, making the right decision based on animal welfare. But realistically, what if this you know carries through, what would happen is we would see um, 
a lot of issues in gestation barns where we're having piglets that are being, you know, essentially crushed by their by the sows that lay down on them because they're offered more space to move around. Um, there would be more. It just is not actually in the animal welfare. Uh, it's, it's not for animal welfare at all. And I think that people just don't understand that, right? They look into it and they think, I'm making this decision based on what I feel is morally correct. But they are not people that are working in a hog barn that see that the, the, what is happening in a hog barn right now is in place to keep all of the pigs as safe as possible. And all of those decisions that our pig farmers make every day are with their, with their hogs in the forefront of their minds. And so it would just be a mess, like, if this went into play. Okay. And, Tyler, there's a science. There's a, a certain way that, that farmers take care of livestock. You know, talk about that because, in essence, I think California, the folks behind this, may think that there's things happening to animals that's not really happening. Well, yeah, and I, I think uh, especially as we're on the forefront of, um, you know, especially like the, the medicine, uh, antibiotics and all that stuff, I think there's a perception out there that uh, we as people and uh, livestock industry uh, overuse these things to our benefit. Uh, and, and, again, I don't think we tell our story good enough. Uh, we don't want to overuse these. Uh, they're tools for us because they cost a tremendous amount of money. Um, and, and we still have a bottom dollar in place. Um, animal husbandry is uh, at foremost for, for everybody that does it. I mean, uh, you don't wake up and take care of lot, you know, livestock, whether it's pigs or cattle or you're a dairy farmer, uh, just because, you know, you don't enjoy it. Like, you have to love it and live it because it is, it is a lot of work, a lot of stress, a lot of risk. Uh, but it's also very rewarding, too, if you do love it. So I, I think, again, it goes back to telling your story uh, and making sure people understand that we're not bad people. No, not at all. Wendell? I could, let me offer the simplistic mind, the way I look at this. And I don't know all the details they do, but I thought I heard that it would take about 15% of the pork producers would provide all the pork that California needs. So what, it's like organic farming. Why don't you take that 15% takes care of California and a wild card is if it's going to spread to other states, and, and I hadn't really thought about that. Um, but, you know, I've got one friend who runs a pretty big hog operation, and they just shake their head. It just it makes no economic sense to march to this tune. At the same time, can you afford not to? Yeah, I mean, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, really redneck solution is, okay, you don't want our hogs? We're not going to send you any pork. See how long you, you can get along without any bacon and, and uh, uh, cheeseburgers. Call it the don't take my bacon campaign, right? Yeah. That's right. So, you know, the problem is not just California Prop 12. It's, it's the fact that all these different states can start bringing up ballot initiatives and throwing these rules around that aren't don't have any scientific evidence or guidance from actual farmers writing that legislation. So if we do say we're not going to be compliant, which that is what most of Illinois is doing, or most of us, it costs several thousand dollars per pig to change up your operation to be Prop 12 compliant. And it's farming in a way that a lot of farmers don't believe is the best way. So they're not doing it. Well, so then what happens? You look at the ramifications of that. California has less pork. The rest of the country has more pork. Then our markets are going to go even lower than we've struggled with this last year. It's it's a, a really big ripple because that's going to go through the industry as well, and not just the pork industry, the agriculture industry, because that not only affects pig farming, it's going to affect corn, it's going to affect soy. I mean, and it can affect cattle eventually. And I think it's just more about the precedent being set here. And... When we did take that argument to the Supreme Court, they didn't say we were wrong. They just said that this is a matter bigger than us and the government needs to needs to weigh in on this. Sure. So, and it certainly happens when the term CAFO gets used. Everybody gets in, you know, up in arms about that. Ken? This really leads into what I hope is part of the discussion uh, Monday night when Lauren Lurkins comes in and and essentially came in with the assignment that farmers need to be aware uh, of what the environmentalists are doing, what 
problems uh, are facing us related to the environment. Certainly, what she has to say is going to relate to this. You, we were talk, you were talking about uh, Brazil. You know, one of the big differences in terms of their use of chemicals is a lot of that land where they're growing corn and soybeans is a long way from places like Peoria and Chicago and so forth. And, and they can get by with uh, the use of some chemicals that we may not be able to uh, find that we can use in this area. So I would encourage everybody to go listen to what Lauren has to say and ask some of these questions of, of her because she's become a specialist in dealing with the uh, the legalities and the legislation and the public opinion, which is a big factor in, in plotting for the future. Dwayne? I don't mean to put Jill and Lana on the spot, but I will. Um, how much truth is there to things I've heard that there are people in Illinois who very much want to emulate Proposition 12? And I know you said you're worried about it spreading, but I've heard that from several different sources that Illinois could be the next state to uh, ag aggressively adopt something like Proposition 12. There's this little town called Chicago. Yes, that's what I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> that does reside in our boundaries of our state, yes. and they are very far from a pig farm and very far from a, far from a, a farm field. So, um, Could Illinois be the next state? Absolutely. Well, Illinois terrifying. Has, has followed other aspects of California uh, in other ways. Um, so that's a great point, Dwayne. Please, Jill, continue. Absolutely. So, you know, California has put this 24-foot expectation. That could be Illinois because we all know how the state is and how voting goes. If you do not get out there and let people know that this is an issue and that pig farming and taking care of our livestock is our priority and we are doing those things with the best practices. We have worked hundreds of years to develop the practices that we use today to raise a great quality protein for the industry, have a low carbon footprint, you know, all these things that we've worked hard towards and when you start implementing these rules, it's taking us back generations. So just even these space parameters, if you walked into a barn that was Prop 12 compliant, those pigs, pigs establish a hierarchy in a pen. And when you're taking them in and out, it's, it gets rough, especially with those movements. And Proposition 12 requires that movement to be made quickly after they've delivered. So they don't have that, what we see as protection to keep them safe and keep them healthy. Now we're taking that away because we want to sell to California. So I do fear that Illinois needs to be a leader in talking about this point because you're right, Illinois could be next. Well, hopefully um, you guys can get to Springfield and find ways to continue with Illinois pork producers, Illinois beef, Illinois soy, Illinois corn, all do their best to go and share this information. And is it the California legislature that came up with this? It's not Californians, because they don't want to pay more for their food either, but they are obviously elected by the residents of California. It was a voted on ballot initiative okay. from the public. However, if you look at the language in that initiative, it was very misleading, in my opinion. Lena? Well, and I think too, you know, like, Tyler said, we have to tell our story well. And a lot of times people don't, like, you know, Jill was talking about everything that's come into place that happens in hog barns was done with the protection of the pigs in mind. And when you put something on a ballot initiative like that and people read it and they think, oh, I'm making this great decision based on this animal welfare, they are not people that are probably raised on pig farms that understand that everything that is happening in a pig farm is based on the animal welfare. They just look at it as, oh, I feel like these animals should have freedom to move around. That seems like a great idea. And they're marking this, that they're voting for it, but they don't understand what is happening. So telling the story and getting that out there is the best thing that we can do. Um, communicating with everyone all the time that um, our animal welfare is at the forefront of our minds, I think is um, imperative to making sure that we move in the right direction on it. Well, you make excellent points because... Some of this is a marketing, it feels marketing because 
the way the language is written, this would an all-time high for how, how much money is being spent on pets. So the language looks like, you know, as a Californian, maybe, if you're not a pig farmer or a cattle farmer, um, that you're, you're looking at a pet versus animal husbandry or agriculture. Um, Troy and Brian, Ken, Dan, last thing for you here. What concerns me as well is these kind of costs, uh, for you guys, think about your customers, these, these really change the bottom line of your farmer's P&L statement, or balance sheets, I should say. You know, hundred hundred percent, and you know, just to piggyback on to what everybody's already said, but you know, we're in a, a headline society today, where where people just want to read a headline, they want to read a, a tweet, they want to read the the, the headline from a Facebook post, um, and you know, these people feel like they're doing good by like, oh, these pigs need more space, but like everybody said, they don't know the realities, and telling the story like it's in farmers' best interest to have more live pigs, have healthier pigs, and get them to market faster. That's that's in their best interest. Um, I, I wish some of these people would have the opportunity to go see a few sows that farrow outside and see the, the mud and uh, and how many pigs get laid on and all that. I, I, just, I think people would have a different perception if they saw reality, but it, it, nobody takes time to read in the details. They want to see a headline, and they want to base a decision on the five second reading a headline and, and then move on with the rest of their day. But back to the, the initial point of that is, is everything's got a cost. And if people want their pigs to be raised like this, even if it's not the right way, you know, maybe they're willing to pay, pay much, but we have to have guaranteed premiums to do that, to justify this increased cost. And nobody wants to pay more for their, for their product than they're already paying with inflation that we've seen. Yeah. Good point. Yes, Ken. I'm gonna pat Farm Bureau on the on the back for a minute to respond to Dwayne's question about would this happen in Illinois. Farm Bureau's done a great job with an adopt a legislator program, bringing Chicago and suburban legislators downstate to learn about agriculture. Uh, Tyler and Cassie have hosted the new partner of Warren Henderson Farm Bureau. The more we can get Chicago legislators and suburban legislators downstate to understand what agriculture is all about, at least they're going to be uh, a little more likely to listen if the issue comes up and we give them a chance to explain. Because I remember what it was like uh, having pigs outside uh, on a slab of ice or pile of mud or whatever it was. And if they could see that, they turn around in a moment. Right. Tyler, go ahead. Since he referenced you as the Adopt a Legislator program, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say that that is a wonderful program. Um, we, we certainly enjoyed that day that we uh, spent with uh, our legislator. Um, I, I think I think maybe from a perspective, we always think that little city up north is always against us. Uh, there was quite a few things that we found that day that we all had in common. Uh, things going on up there that, that they struggle with, that we struggle with. Um, and I think that Adopt a Legislative Program shows there is a lot of them uh, that are willing to come and learn uh, and, and have an open mind about it. And I can't remember the number that we referenced that day, but there is a substantial amount of them in that program. Um, I, think, I don't want to say 60-some are in the program this year so I'd be over 50 uh, percent yeah I, it's uh it's a pretty impactful program okay did you have something Wendell you wanted to add cool what I used to raise pigs in an a house a houses and I tell you what show you what happens you get a four inch rain on a bunch of new pigs and the mortality rate is just about zero <laughs> the survival rate is about zero I actually remember a houses that's how they were raised in Arkansas, too, and I wondered what they were. And my dad would say, the dog houses for pigs. Then a fox or a coyote was going to get people right? those pigs. So. Absolutely. And that goes back to, you know, we've look how far we've come in, in these generations of being able to provide better care for these animals. Oh, there's still a question. Uh, you know, I get asked by people all the time about agriculture that, that don't know ram or they're in another state and always having to explain farmers are the best environmental stewards of the land. Troy taught me that from some 
some stuff he had shared with us in many ag roundtables ago about 1933 and what happened with the the, the Dust Bowl and, and all of the challenges in the USDA getting in place and how much soil we protect since then, and that's due to farmers. Um, so California has a lot to learn about farming, uh, it sounds like. Uh, Dan, anything else? Oh, I know I was going to ask you one other thing. Um, my concern is for farmers like Tyler and Jill. Young farmers are told to diversify and have an off-farm uh, job to supplement, you know, with, with livestock and row crops. So that would be a concern for me is, is to get out of the pig business um, because of the cost of, due to things like Prop 12. Sure, and I, and I don't specifically know about the, the hog side of it, the industry side of it, although we used to raise hogs many moons ago in the same fashion Wendell was talking about doing. So um, the biggest point you have there is, I mean, it's a very high-intensity capital uh, business from a from an ag standpoint, anything you get into anymore is that way. So I mean, it's it's not easy. Uh, the diversification is definitely uh, something that needs to be looked at. If you're not, you know, maybe an heir or or a younger family member to a larger operation, um, certainly for anybody to go out and do it on their own uh, from scratch is is an uphill battle, and and that's unfortunate in a lot of ways. But it it is what it is from that perspective. So. Um, and certainly one thing that's a, that's a hot topic today is, um, you know, interest costs and everything else, too, in the world we live in. So, I mean, not only are the input side of things, whether it's machinery, uh, seed, chemicals, whatever it is, uh, high, you're also, your borrowing costs are getting a lot higher, too, with increasing inflation. Okay. Yes, Lena. And I always say this, and people who have heard me say it probably think that I'm a broken record by now. I do not have any agricultural background. Before I moved to Springfield, I was a book publicist. Um, so I have learned a lot of this from the ground up um, in the last couple years that I've been the communications director for IPPA. And the only thing that has changed my mind, because I was probably the person, you know, in Chicago that everybody was saying, like, why well, you're making these decisions and you don't know what's going on. But the only thing that changed my mind about the pork industry is meeting pork producers and talking to them and seeing their barns and how much they do care for their animals. And like Tyler said, no one is waking up in the morning doing this that hates their job because it is a hard job. Um, so I just think it's so important that instead of looking at it as an us versus them um, situation with whatever we're dealing with, we look at a way that how do we meet each other halfway? Like how do we tell this story? Because that's what we need to do. We need to start coming together on situations like this where people aren't making these decisions because they want to poorly impact pig farmers. They're not looking at it that far ahead. They're just, like I said earlier, they're just trying to make a decision that they feel good about. And you pointed out that a lot of this is based on possibly how people treat their pets. But we have the birthing center. Oh, I know center. it is. I hear it from the, the young kids, the interns that we, sure. we have. And we have the birthing center at the State Fair, which is an mm -hmm. eye-opening experience for so many people because they come through and they see those sweet little piglets. But what they don't understand is that in a year, those piglets are going to be the sow that is in the crate. And they don't want anything to do with that sow, you know, but they're looking at it from like this sweet little red barn of cute animals that they want to protect. And so um, if you have the chance to talk to a pig farmer, really getting in, in the weeds with them, talking about what this does to them, please do. That's how you're going to gain the knowledge about making a decision about Prop 12. You know what we need? You said it, Facebook, social media, post headlines. We need one of those really cool famous influencers to tell the story and get the headlines of real truth and, and positive information. I don't know who that person would be. I but think National Pork Board has Luke Bryan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, somebody like Matthew McConaughey, somebody who actually has <laughs> followers, you know, like <laughs> somebody like LeBron James, you know what I mean? Uh, but that, that would help if we could find someone who could, who could share our story positively. Real quick, before we go to break, uh, our livestock folks, let us know about um, biosecurity efforts in case of ever having any type of, uh, in the old days it was called pet cow disease, uh, African swine fever. What are the efforts? Uh, how are we on that front? Yeah, so um, in the pork industry, we are ever preparing for a foreign animal disease outbreak. Um, that's definitely been ramped up with the increase in ASF over the last seven years. Um, so... There's a lot going on. Um, we have a nationwide system that's being established. Um, the United States Blind Health Improvement Plan is in the works, and different tracking systems 
a lot of different standards that are being upheld to enhanced biosecurity plans. So not just the standard plans, but even leveling those up that include tracking on transportation, on and off farm, um, a, lot, a lot of things going on. And that, and I know we'll talk about Farm Bill later, but that is a lot of our focus okay. in the Farm Bill is support for, for those initiatives. I remember the flu that decimated uh, part of our poultry industry, and I've seen the changes uh, being close with folks down south, what it's done to our poultry operations in Arkansas, North Carolina, Mississippi. Yes, um, and so on. we're using that poultry plan as the basis for, for the swine health plan. Okay. Tyler? I mean, I would just add, I think, from a biosecurity standpoint, um, uh, and, and diseases coming in, I mean, the, the cattle industry is always uh, one mad cow scare away from a train wreck. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think uh, for the most part, again, livestock producers have a lot of things in place. I mean, I used to work uh, in hog barns, um, you know, in and out of them as a field manager. And, uh, I mean, this was years ago. I mean, the amount of showers you take and cans of all you go through, I, I, I think there's a lot of good things already in place in this industry. Okay. Thank you, Tyler. Ken, forgive me. I've, I've yet to have your commentary on this discussion on Prop 12 and um, biosecurity. Well, I guess, you know, one of the things that I could throw in there is um, I've got a daughter and a son-in-law that work in the uh, pork industry for a large producer, and he works at a south farm where they've actually – uh, build a Prop 12 compliant gestation building, um, and you know it's not as efficient as their old buildings that they used to use. They you know they have more death loss uh, because of this, you know, and it just creates problems. There's there's fighting amongst uh, the pigs and, and the sows and stuff. So it's uh, it's it's not a perfect science at this point as far as uh, you know, being better treating the animals. Uh, I think we've we've discussed that. It's uh, you know the animals aren't getting better treatment because they have more space. Um, you know, it's creating other problems. You know, especially for the pork producers. Plus, the cost of of putting up that building was uh, was outrageous, and that was sure. just one side. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, let's take our first break. It's 11.08 on WRAM Monmouth, Illinois. We'll be back in approximately 10 minutes. We'll talk carbon capture, sequestration pipeline, farm bill. Also, we'll talk food labeling, lab-grown meat, consumer perception, et cetera. We'll be back with more on WRAM.